Please just stretch out your hands towards Alan. Heavenly Father, we just bring your wonderful servant Alan and our earthly spiritual father to you into your presence, Lord. We pray that your very heart and the very word that you want to speak through your precious servant, Lord, that it comes right into him, Lord. Lord, by faith we reach into the spirit realm and into the heavens, that your very word and your very heartbeat and your very, the very impartation of your heart and nature comes through us, comes into Alan, just comes into him with a great power right now, Lord. And also I speak that a great confidence shall be within him to speak out without any restraint, to speak with boldness and confidence that your heart, Lord, that your heart, Father, that your heart, Holy Spirit, may be transmitted and imparted. Father, we lose, I lose the word of heaven here on earth. And I speak an ability and an anointing to come on Alan to speak it out. Amen. Amen. Well, let's just um, first turn to the notes and you'll find that basically there are three major sections which are left and the first section goes from page 26 to page 32 and that's dealing with this issue of gates um, the first words that Jesus said when he uh, realized that Peter was getting true revelation from God, he said, well, now I can take you and I can, I can build you into a church. And against this church, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. They won't be able to stand. But going right back into the early uh, days in Genesis 22, just after Abraham had offered Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God, knowing somehow that for God to fulfill his word, he'd have to have him back raised from the dead. And that was the, sort of like, that was the ultimate act of faith. Then immediately God says to him that you will possess the gates of your enemies. It's the first thing he says. Then if you go to Genesis 24, as Rebecca is being prepared to go and marry Isaac, the, the son of promise. And as she's about to leave her people, um, in verse 60, as they prophesy over us, they say that you're going to be, your descendants are going to be in thousands and thousands. And, and then again, it, it gives the same promise and that you will possess the gates of your enemies. So it, it's a powerful prophetic word. 
And I, obviously, I'm not going to try and teach it all because it would take at least one session to do it. But there are tapes available, and the notes you've got there are pretty comprehensive. But what we've got to recognize is that, that as we move from the physical gates of a city, which were what they were, they were the entrance points into the city, a, a, an old testament, an old ancient city in all the lands of that region, they were protected by building a, a protective wall around them. And the gates, the walls were pretty thick and pretty impenetrable, like the, the walls around Jericho, which have been discovered by archaeologists. They were about, there were two walls. One was about 100 feet, 30 meters high, about 30 feet wide, or if you like, 10 meters wide. I mean, and, and uh, you could literally build houses and drive a horse and carts along the top of the walls. And if you go to somewhere like um, Zada in uh, um, Croatia, you'll find there in the region of Illyricum, which is mentioned in the Bible, you'll find in the ancient town of Zada, there is still an intact city gate, which is about 3,000 years old. You can see what these gates were like. And in these walls were tunnels were, were, were formed and these were the entrance points into the city. And anyone coming into the city had to pass through this tunnel, and it, the whole tunnel was called the gate. And at either end of this tunnel, a powerful, strong doors were attached, usually iron-reinforced wood. And they were open in the daytime, they were closed at night. And so the picture is that you couldn't get into the city without going through the gate. In the gate, it was customary for the elders of the city, who were the ruling government of the city, to sit there on their quite high throne-like seats. And they would have a certain number of, of soldiers available. And they, they were there for two purposes. First of all, they watched everything that went in or out of the city. They, and if they didn't like the look of something coming in, they would stop it. And if they decided it was un unhealthy for the city, they wouldn't permit it entrance. They also could see what was going out. So, so from the gates, all that came into the city was regulated. The second purpose was, which you see like in, in the book of Ruth, um, Boaz goes to the elders of the gate to get a judgment concerning Naomi's land. So it also acted like a magistrate's court. And the elders would sit there as judges and bring judgments on all kinds of daily disputes which were affecting the lives of the people. So the gates were the places where the city was controlled and the lives of the people were regulated. And people wouldn't obviously go to the nearest gate to where they were, but the elders of the city all worked together. And as a result, the city was secure. So that's the picture. Then as you go into the prophets, it becomes, it becomes not physical, but spiritual. And the gates move from earth to the heavenlies, but they're performing the same function. That is, from the gates, the daily lives of the people are regulated. And what comes into the city is controlled. And the, the lives of, of the judiciary, particularly, were controlled from those gates. And so the prophet starts speaking about the gates in this heavenly sense, but the influence of those heavenly gates is to, is to influence the city 
over which they're erected. So, so we mustn't be too literal today. I know that some people, for example, will get in a car and drive around the city, and then they will go to each one of the entrance points physically and pray a prayer. Well, that may or may not be appropriate, but actually the battle's really in the heavens. And what we've learned is that you can, you can basically divide gates into three categories. And I've just mentioned this if you quickly go through your notes here. And I'll just mention that, then I'm going to, I'm going to shut down on this subject here. If you come to page, um, where are we, page 29 in your notes. And we come to the first category, and these are the spheres of control which have a strong influence on the way that people think and then as a result, the way they behave. I want us to see that so much of what we're talking about is really a battle for the control of people's minds. The God of this world has done what? He has blinded the minds of those that do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ should shine in unto them. So it's a, it's a, a battle of the mind and the way people think. And the devil has been well aware for a long time that if you can get people to think his way, then he, he's got control of them. So I've just listed them here, some of the main gates which powerfully shape the way people think and then as a result the way they behave. Number one is the media, and I put down music, films, the film industry, radio and television, literature, magazines and books. Then we've got the education system. They all basically control and have a tremendous effect on the way people think. And they're the gates which we have to take. Then you go on to the political system, the legal system, and the religious system. They have tremendous control upon the way people behave. Amen? And finally, you've got the financial system, which supplies the power to cause the other things to operate one way or the other. And then the final thing I put down here is the cultural traditions of the people. What they've been taught to uh, accept as culturally normal, as culturally acceptable, and culturally unacceptable. And these gates are taken in the follow, following ways. And, and the way that they are taken is for, for us to influence the people that have influence in these areas, either by changing their hearts or by changing the people. I'm not going to go into it all. I, I feel I'm going to spend too much time on this. The second category of gates, which is on page 30, but I would recommend that you do read these carefully. And, and there are further books and tapes you can take to study it even more. Because we've got to learn how to be gate-takers. And if you go through our nation and our society, and anywhere in the world pretty well, you have to admit that all these, these pillars of our society, or these gates, they're in the control of the devil. Would you think, would you agree with me there? And that has to be changed. And that's then God's promised us that we will possess the gates of our enemies. We either believe that or we don't believe it. Just imagine the United States of America where the media, the television, the film industry, the literature, newspapers are all gloriously and delightfully proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just imagine that. It's happening to some extent in some places. Like Guillermo Maldonado was here just 
he, he left, unfortunately he had to get back, but he has had tremendous influence on a number of the smaller Central and South American countries. Like Nic he's, he's from Honduras, but the, the president of Nicaragua and the president of El Salvador came to Florida to attend the opening of his new church, and I was there when these two guys turned up. And he just had a tremendous uh, crusade in, in uh, Nicaragua where all, like imagine the San Antonio Express, imagine uh, USA Today spending the first four pages of its daily newspaper reporting on the crusade meeting last night, describing all the healings and all the mighty things that God did. Now that's what's happening there right now. So, and this is not because it's controlled by Christians, it's because there's something happened to the, to the heart of the media and they're now beginning to function in a kingdom way. I remember being years ago uh, in Kenya when I happened to be there, I forget why I was there, but I was there on Christmas Day and President Moy in his early days was a much more God-fearing, Christ-exalting man than he gradually uh, deteriorated into not being, if you understand what I'm saying. But I'm not judging him. The, inf the, the pressures on these sort of people are absolutely enormous. But I happened to be there when, when the, Saturday, the Christmas morning newspaper came out. And here was the newspaper celebrating the birth of Jesus the King. And uh, it was just pages of, of just exalting. You know, remember, you people, when you go away and enjoy your family and enjoy your food, don't forget what this is all about. This is the Daily Newspaper, San Antonio Express saying, don't forget that this is here to celebrate Jesus the King who came to this earth and laid his life down for us. And he's the saviour of the world and we mustn't forget what this is all about. And it was incredible to read that stuff in the Daily Newspaper. I still got the copy in my file somewhere. And, and, and I'm longing for the day when this becomes normal. Amen? All right, now let's move on. The second category of gates are geographical sites of intense demonic strength and activity. And these are sites like temples, grottos, worship sites. I'm halfway down page 30, by the way. Worship sites where holy objects, idols, and other gods are worshipped. These would include individual shrines devoted to the veneration of Mary and other saints, as well as idols and religious objects, of other religions. Mormon temples will be included and all that kind of stuff. And these would include the sites of demonic worship and anything involved in the occult, particularly places of blood sacrifice. This would include sites where blood has been violently spilled like battle sites and massacre sites, particularly where vengeance was the motive of the massacre. And you'll find that these strongholds are all over the place, all over this nation, all over every nation. When you identify them, and when you go and deal with them, something breaks. I could tell you so many stories, I just don't have the time. Just around here in Texas, where we've specifically gone to certain specific places, and we've dealt with the thing only to see a glorious breakthrough. So this is not theory, this is real stuff. And there's something about the power of shed blood, even when it's which gives the, if it's done in the name of the devil and by the power of the devil, and if it's, if it's then it, there's a power about that which has to be broken. And, and when these things are dealt with, it releases something in the heavenly realm and you suddenly find that the whole atmosphere changes. I can't say more, but you can get books and texts which help you to know a lot more. The third category of gates, which I'll mention quickly, are people. These are actual people, and they consist of people, this is page 31, 
who have deliberately given themselves to Satan to serve him directly. Or it may not be that, but they've given themselves with, with, with deliberate passion to serve a satanically inspired cause. It could be a political cause. It could be, and, and, and they do it with, a, with a, a devilish inspired passion. And as a result, a major demonic principality has entered into them and now controls them and works through them to control many other people. I mean, a great terrible example in my boyhood was, of course, was Adolf Hitler. To see the power that he had exercised over multitudes. And you think of the, of the whole Second World War was basically the, the destructive power of one incredibly powerful demon that brought nation after nation under its influence. And if ever you've watched him speak or preach, you could, you could feel the power throbbing out of the thing. And, you wonder, and, and so I could go on with other up to this present day examples. Now, one great and horrible biblical example was the Apostle Paul. In the days when he was a, a crazy, zealous Pharisee, the spirit that had hold of him in his blind hatred of Jesus and of Christians, it was so powerful that it affected three nations, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And, and in those nations were thousands of people that were being influenced by the spirit that was in this man. So the spirit in the man can have an effect upon thousands of people and cause them to behave this way. And of course, this is part of the, the, the horrible power of Islam. And you can see these spirits manifesting themselves in various people in various places. Now, what the apostles did, and you can read this in the Bible, was that when the, the persecution began and the church began to scatter, the apostles stayed together, and you read this in the beginning of Acts 8, and they went to prayer and they went to deal with his stronghold. And the demon came out of him. He was powerfully converted, and he, he was turned into one of the greatest apostles the church has ever had. But what happened was the whole influence stopped. And we read in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 that when he was converted, then the church in three nations suddenly had peace. The persecution stopped. So all the thousands of people that were being motivated by that demon, once the driving force in the one man was taken away, it stopped influencing all these people. And we need to target some of these, you know, people around the world that are a clear manifestation of a, of a demonic gate, a person. And there are, we have them in our own nation in America, and it, we need to get to know them by name. We need to know where they are and what they're doing. Again, I could tell you stories in the occult witchcraft realm where we've seen this and dealt with this in this same way, and in the political realm. This is not theory, this is reality, okay? And as a result, when they are and, and as Eileen said the other day, she said it so beautifully that the demon either has to go either inside or outside the person. It has to go. And, and all of us, I believe, we've got assignments in our own locality. We've got to determine these gates and start to deal with them. And I'm not going to spend any more time on that, not that it's not important, but I think many of us understand that. The next section that I, I deal with, I'm going to spend no time on this at all, is that, that victorious warriors, I make this statement on page 32, victorious warriors, they heal the sick, they cast out devils, 
and they do signs and wonders and miracles in his name. I want us to accept the fact that this is normal Victoria warrior Christianity and that all of us should be functioning this way at, and, and we should be increasing the effectiveness and the power in which we function in this way. And we should be inspiring others to realize that this is a call upon all of us to live this way. Amen? I won't spend any more, but those notes are pretty comprehensive and they explain how this becomes a fact for you and for the people that you lead. This was actually the notes that we used in a, uh, what we called a mini-conference on the mini-conference is entitled Moving in the Miraculous. I think, is it two CDs? It's something like that. And if you want, you can get that, but you need to, be, to, to study it and get into the practicality of it, which takes us on to page 35, where I make this statement again, almost to the point of boring you with it. And I say at the top of page 35, the bottom line affecting everything else is an effective prayer life. And I can't underline that enough times. And then I then go through and give examples of how Jesus himself was the great example of prayer. And particularly, this is revealed in Luke's Gospel. So you'll find on page 35 and the beginning of page 36, we've got, I think it is, uh, about 10 occasions where Jesus is at prayer. And I could spend a lot of time on this, and I do have, uh, I think there's at least one tape on this, although I'm getting more and more revelation on this all the time. So I've got to keep, but, but, but he's the model. And, and I, every, it's, a very, it's a fascinating study to look at all these scriptures and see why Jesus prayed at that particular time, what happened because he prayed. And it's amazing. And, uh, he, he, and I won't go into it, I haven't got the time, but it's important. Uh, if, if, and, and his purpose was to get his disciples to imitate him in his life of prayer. It, we go, I go on to say in the beginning of page 36 that it must be a prayer of faith. Prayer doesn't heal anybody. It's the prayer of faith which causes people to get healed. Amen? And the prayer of faith is totally different from just praying. And, and I, I deal with that. And again, I deal with the basic fundamental issues of what faith is. And uh, I think the book which has just come out will do an even better job than these notes do. So I'm not going to spend any time on that at all. Okay, which takes me on to the final um, stage of this, if I can just unscramble my notes. I go on to deal with on page um, 41 and I explain how you see a flow of miracles through faith and all those sort of things. You get to page 41 and then I talk about the mystery of impartation and anointing, which again I'm not going to have time on, I'm just going to leave that there. And then the final thing which I didn't bring with me was the set of notes I gave you one morning this week where I talk about Jesus, the one-on-one, -on -one, or if you like, the pole fisherman. Because the whole issue of, of this thing expanding is that we learn how to become fishermen. Amen? It's the first promise that Jesus made. He said, if you follow me, 
I will make you to become fishers of men. It's a promise. And it's also, in a way, I feel it's a commandment. And your Heavenly Father, like a natural father, longs to teach his children how to fish. And, and he, you get great pleasure together when you catch your first fish. Amen? And to catch one fish a year, it wouldn't be considered to be very successful fishing. But even if we did that, it would have incredible transforming effect upon the way our churches function. I would be totally dissatisfied, and I'm not talking about preaching in meetings, much as I love to preach evangelistically, and that's what I call net fishing, when you throw the net out and you bring in a great horde of fish. But I'm talking about one-on-one -on -one fishing, just with the people that I meet, just bump into on my journeys, on my travels, people that are usually total strangers. And I've, got all, and I've, I've, I've learned over the years, and I've been trained by the Spirit on, on how to become an effective fisherman. And I've got, way, like, like for example, I've, I've set myself tasks. What would I do if I was in, in, a, in a, a lift or an elevator? I'm going to use both words for the sake of the <laughs> language problems that we have. But imagine I've got 14 floors, say about 30 seconds, and there's someone in the lift with me, and I'm never going to see them again, and yet they need a savior. What would I do? So I've practiced you know, a 20-second message. I had, I, I've got all kinds of ways that I, I used to get people. And wherever they start, I can always turn it around to talk to them about Jesus. And I'm not naturally an extrovert. I'm actually naturally a shy person. I only would tell you, that I actually, I'm a, if you like, the Spirit of God violates my original nature in order, because I, I have to be a witness. I have to talk to people about Jesus. I'm not an, Eileen would talk to anybody all her life, and she was always an embarrassingly extrovert, and I would be you know, rather embarrassed by her, and I would be you know, sort of a, a, a rather shy introvert, but God has totally changed that. And, and I know that he's made me into, he's kept his promise, and I have become a, a fisher of men. And there's nothing I love more than catching men for Jesus, nothing more exciting. Not in, it's not just enough to witness, although sometimes you are privileged to be the beginning of a process, but the most exciting thing is to actually land the catch. You, know, you may be finishing off the process that someone else started years ago. But I, I love to actually invite people to give their lives to Jesus explain them how they can, from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of situations. And those last set of notes are some principles that I've learned and guidelines that I've learned, and, and biblically, uh, the, the exhortation of Scripture to become fishers of men. You'll find that in the New Testament that the gifts of the Spirit were given and were used evangelistically. They weren't normally used, and they weren't, certainly weren't primarily used for Christians to impress one another with the spiritual gifts. They were there to reach the lost. And you find Jesus using those spiritual gifts and, uh, in, in very effectively and, and powerfully, and he's teaching us how to do the same thing. And I've had so many experiences where God will give me a word of knowledge about someone that I'm sitting next to on a plane or someone... I bump into, and I, God will just tell me, you know, their life story. And if they're not converted, it's quite amazing to them when you start to tell them all about them. And explain to them that God knows about them, He loves them, He's not 
he's not going to condemn them, he's there just to, to save them. And I could tell you story after story where I've been given a word of knowledge about someone else, or I've been told to act in a way that's contrary to my nature. But if, if I really, really have given my humanity to Jesus, he's a perfect right to use it any way he wants, any time. And he wants to talk to people in order to get them saved. Amen? So he has the right to use my body for, to that purpose. And so I, gave the, I printed these set of notes off and gave them to you, and, and I've done it because I want this to become the practical outflow of your life as it is of mine, so it might become the practical outflow of the churches and the people that you represent. Finally, when everything's done, if we don't go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the rest of it is it really is largely a waste of time. Would you agree with that? It's a harvest that we're... And, and as we pray and break those demonic strongholds and people suddenly become much more God-conscious, now the purpose of them becoming more God-conscious is that we should reap them, that they should be saved. Amen? And every one of us can do it. Every one of us can do it. Every one of us can be a fisher of men. And my Heavenly Father, who is the great fisherman, he's loved, he always loves to teach his sons how to fish. And they get joy together when you catch something. Amen? Right, that's the, the, that's the notes done. <laughs> now I want to spend the rest of my time on what God began to say to me. As I got up early this morning to seek his face, he began to talk to me. And I want to share what he said. And I'd like you to come with me to... Um, well, let's start at Matthew chapter 5. I know you know some of this, but he, he underlined it so strongly, I felt I had to leave this here. Because I think it's part of making these effective teams come together in the city. Matthew 5 and chapter 9, one of the Beatitudes says this. You know it off by heart as I've known it off by heart for years. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the mature, grown-up, sons of God. I'm just expanding the word huios. And the word is peacemaker. It's not peace lover. In other words, peacemaking is an activity. It's not an emotion. It's not, a, not, a, not an attitude. And Jesus puts that there and says that, that those that are peacemakers, then if you go on down to, to page 40 to verse 40 something, it then expands it further and says that, 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 um, uh, that, that, that you, you, you will just be just like your Father in heaven if you, if you go out and make peace. And that word peace, as some of you know and some of you don't know, but for those that don't know, let me just remind you, the word peace, the Greek word's the word Irene. The lady's name comes from it. The two Hebrew words, shalom and shiloh, are the Hebrew equivalent. But all these three words, particularly the Greek word, they're not really adequately translated by the English word peace. We just don't have a word which conveys what that word actually says. Because if you say something about peace, you think of maybe something, you know, an atmosphere of tranquility. Isn't it peaceful here? Or you could say that after a war, the warring parties make 
a, a, peace, a truce of peace where the war stops. But that's not what this word means. This word is primarily a relational word. And here's the best definition that I've found on peace. You've got to think of two people who are, in, they are hostile towards each other, they're trying to kill each other, and then something happens that they, they then want to make peace. And for biblical peace to be fully fulfilled, they would have to lay down their arms and they would have to stop fighting each other. Well, even when that's happened, you've not yet come to biblical peace. All you've done is to come to the end of the war. For biblical peace to be fulfilled, they would need to fall into each other's arms in a genuine reconciliation of love and the relationship would have to be mended. Because the word, in every case, is a relational word. So it's the ending of, an of, a, of a relationship of hostility and replacing it with a, a relationship of love where you're totally united and, and joined together in that reconciliation. This same Greek word, irene, was used in the medical profession at the time the Bible was written. And it was used in the uh, area of broken bones. When a bone was fractured, when the broken parts of the bone came together and then the marrow came out and the marrow spread out over the fracture and then over a period of time it calcified and became absolutely hard, then that bone, if it's, the process is completed, is now thicker and stronger at the point of fracture than any other part of the bone. When it's totally completely healed, a bone which has been broken and then truly and satisfactorily mended by that wonderful healing process, the bone is very, very unlikely ever to break at the same point again. What was the weakest point has now become the strongest point. When that process of a bone fracturing and then the two broken parts being brought together and allowing the natural healing process to take place, when that healing process was complete, they would say, the bone has now come to peace. They'd use the same word, irene. In other words, it's a picture of something which has been fractured, being so beautifully mended that it's now unbreakably joined. And that's the idea behind peace. Now, come to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. And we're told this wonderful truth by the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1. And come to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, all fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, Again, if you trace this word peace throughout the New Testament, you will find that almost without exception, the word peace is always accompanied by the word reconciliation. Katalage is the Greek word. And that that that's, emphasizes the relational nature of this thing. Now, what we're being told here was that God made peace through the blood of his cross. He couldn't bear the broken relationship. And so he took, although he was the innocent party, 
And although we were totally guilty, and we weren't looking for any way to mend the relationship with God, but he couldn't bear to, to be separated from the man that he created to love. He longed for reconciliation. So he takes the initiative to come down in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and to give his life in that terrible, awesome, awful sacrifice for sin in order that as a result we might be reconciled, in order to mend the relationship. Amen? Now that's the heart of it. That's the picture of it. Now that's what God's talking about. And once that relationship was mended, as we're told in other parts of Scripture, what, who can separate from the love of God? Can, nothing can separate us. It, it has been so incredibly mended that it's now unbreakable. Now, Adam had a relationship with God before he stepped into independence, before he sinned, which was the relationship of innocence, but it was an untested relationship. But the relationship of innocence is far weaker than the relationship that comes through reconciliation. Amen? Because once Adam had broken that relationship, and the bone was broken, and God cried out, Adam, where are you? And then God took step. He took the initiative. He paid the price. He did everything to make it possible for that bone to be mended. And once it was mended through the blood of the cross, it now, hallelujah, it becomes unbreakable. So the relationship which I now have with God is far better, far stronger, and far greater than the relationship that Adam had with God before he sinned. The relationship of reconciliation is far stronger than the relationship of innocence. That's how powerfully, how powerfully the bone is mended. Amen? Now that's where we're going. Come with me just to one other place. Come with me to um, Ephesians in chapter 2. So the first way this works is for God to mend the relationship between himself and with us. Now come to Ephesians in chapter 2. And we're told this, talking about the, the separation, the, the broken relationship between Gentile and Jew. And he says he's writing to the Jews primarily, but he's talking about how they now are to be related to the Jews. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is what? Is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. <coughs> Excuse me. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built into the foundation, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, fitted together, grows into a holy habitation in the Lord, in which you also are being built together for a place of, for God in the Spirit. In other words, here's this incredible reconciliation. This is peacemaking. He's made peace 
through the blood of his cross so that even Jew and Gentile now can come together in one new nation and be built together in one church on one foundation and the Lord Jesus Christ is the glorious king of everything. Hallelujah. Now that's the picture. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now I want us to go to somewhere else now, please. Come to John chapter 19. This is what... And this is where Jesus is on the cross being crucified. In verse 30, he cries out, It's finished! And the cry that he cried, that's why I shouted it, is actually, it's the cry that when two gladiators were fighting and one of them made the killing thrust and said, it's finished! It was the cry of victory, it wasn't the cry of pain. The Greek word that was used is the word teleos. And the word teleos was also used in accountancy. And when someone had debts piled up which they could not pay, and those debts were somehow paid, and every debt was now cancelled, they would take all these bills of debt, and they would write over each bill of debt this same Greek word, teleos, finished, or if you like, nothing to pay. Now that was the cry of triumph of Jesus. Now notice that, because he didn't cry that when he came out of the tomb on resurrection morning. He cried that, on the cross at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon when sin at that point was fully paid for. Please understand this. Then at the same time, in the temple, the veil of the temple into the holiest of all was ripped from top to bottom, signifying that the way into God's holy presence was now open to us. It happened and was completed at the cross. It's finished, it's paid for, nothing to pay. Then, in the hypocrisy of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, that the Thursday, the next day, notice I said Thursday, because he was crucified on Wednesday, I won't get into that now, was a special, was a special, how else could he have been in the tomb three days and three nights, except that he was crucified? It all works perfectly if you just do your, do your maths. It's not my job to do it right now. So, so Thursday was a special holy high day, which was a particular holy high day for the week of Passover. There were two Sabbaths. There was one on Thursday, there was one on Saturday. So it was coming up to 6 p.m. on Wednesday, which of course is the beginning of the new day. That, so Thursday begins at 6 p.m. on Wednesday by our reckoning. Do you understand that? So just before they came into that holy day, they said, look, we can't leave the bodies hanging on the cross during the Sabbath. You know, not that they illegally killed him in the most terrible way, but we must, be, we must be flawlessly perfect in our idiotic sort of religious appearance. I mean, it's, it's so unbelievable. So they said, well, look, break the, the bones of these men so that they'll die quickly, so we can take them off the cross and we can get them off the cross before the Sabbath begins. You've got three hours to do it. And when they came to Jesus, to their surprise, they found that he was already dead. We're told in verse 30 that he dismissed his spirit. He didn't, he didn't die, he chose to die. He said, no one can take my life from me. 
I have authority, that's the word, I have exousia, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And when that Roman centurion saw the way that Jesus died, that he was actually in charge of his own execution, he was only there because it was the will of his father, he wasn't there because of the power of Rome, he wasn't there because of the hostility of the Jews, he was there to, 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 to complete the purpose of God and to pay for the sin of all of Adam's race. And when it was done, there was no point in staying there any longer. So he chose his own moment to die. Hallelujah. And then when it was time to come back again, he came back again. And that Roman centurion who was watching all this, he'd seen many people killed in battle. He'd crucified people before. But he'd never seen a man like this man who was loving and forgiving and, and decided his own moment to die. And it says this in both Mark and Matthew. And when the centurion saw the way that he died, he got on his knees and said, truly, this is the Son of God. See, God's never out of control. Everything's working to his timetable. Everything's fulfilling his purpose exactly. And he dismissed his spirit. Then we read that in order to avoid the embarrassment of, of corpses being on the cross during the Sabbath, they decided to break their legs. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side and blood and water came out. That's all full of great import, but I dare not get into that one. Come down to verse 36. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. If you'd like to come with me now to Psalm 34. So I, I, I want you to see something here. Because you see, what we have there in that physical body allegorically shouting to us is a picture of the body of Christ. This body of Christ, which is going to be uh, not made up of a human body, it's going to be made up of, of many, 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 many living stones joined together uh, to become one body in the Lord, to become the corporate Christ. But this is a picture for us all to understand. Come to Exodus 34. I'm sorry, Psalm 34. What did I say that for? Psalm 34. Which, which, is, which is actually being quoted here in, in John's Gospel. And, and I, it's a fantastic song. I want you to read it all. But let's come, come in. It, it, it's, it's um, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continue to be in my mouth. I sought the Lord, verse 4. He heard me, delivered from all my fears. Come to verse 7. This, for verse 6, this poor man cried out, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now come down to verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days and that he may see good? This is it. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. He's talking about being in reconciled to people. Now, the one thing I said to you yesterday was that the thing that you cannot be partner to and you must separate from is people in the church that cause division. That's what it says in, in, in very strongly. If they, if they cause division, you separate from them. Because division is under God's hates. But what God longs for is reconciliation. He says, now, if you want to see good and if you want 
deny the fear of the Lord, you want the devil, the angel to camp around you, deliver you from all your fears, then you depart from evil and do good. Keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off remembrance of them from the earth. Now just come for a moment. I just think we need to do this. Come for a moment to um, 1 John. No, I think it's 2 John actually. Just come quickly with me. See what's being said here, the other side of it here. Sorry, I've lost the scripture. So well. Anyway, I'll find it. I'm sorry, I just cannot put my finger on it. I know it so well. Leave it. I, I don't want to get distracted. Leave it. So let's go back to Psalm 34. I'll find it. It'll come back to me in a moment. The righteous cry out, verse 17, the Lord hears, delivers them, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all their bones. Not one of them shall be broken. Now, what you want to see here, there's a great cry here. I hope you can get this great cry for, for peacemaking, for not speaking evil, and if you will do that, then all the power of God is going to be let loose in your defense. And, and the picture that I saw, and, and so powerfully hit me, was hanging on that cross there, as the sin had gone out of it, and, we, and, and that which was going to come back in the power of resurrection. He said, I can't have any broken bones in my body. And the picture I had was this. Just imagine, you know, someone, say, maybe... A foreigner. He's, he's trained in the highest levels of military skills and he's got, if you like, you know, tremendous uh, ability. He's got tremendous weapons and facilities available to him. But he's, say, walking in a city like, like New York and he comes from Europe, so he's looking, well, comes from England, so he's looking the wrong way. And he steps off the curb in, in, the, light, in the way of a truck and gets run over. And here is this guy with all that military training, with all that weaponry available to him. I mean, if he's physically fit, and if there weren't any broken bones, he would be an absolute menace. But the trouble is, because of the broken bones, he's lying in hospital, totally useless. And all that military skill, all that equipment, all that weaponry, all that training, is, cannot have any effect at all until the bones are mended. 
And I saw that the body of Christ in many cities is just like that. We've got, you know, we, we're learning all about spiritual warfare, taking cities, taking gates, you know, strike teams and all this tremendous stuff, which when it's put into the right hand in the right way, it's going to smash the devil's kingdom to pieces. But in most places, it's not working because the body of Christ in a particular locality is more like a soldier that's been run over by a truck. And God says, blessed are the peacemakers because they're going to go and they're going to go out of their way like God did while he was the innocent party, while he was not responsible for the break at all. He still had this passion and his love to, to mend the break. And, and, and as I was lying in bed in the early hours of this morning, wide awake, he spoke to me about certain people in the city of San Antonio. And he said, I want you to go and be a peacemaker. Because until you do, we can't put together the city-taking team. There were too many broken bones. Now, you may or may not be responsible for the break, but that doesn't invalidate the exhortation to go and do something about it. Amen? Hear what I'm saying? God didn't wait for Adam to come and say, I'm sorry, and seek to mend the relationship. He came while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. He took the initiative because he couldn't bear the separation. And I realized that I've been far too passive about some broken relationships where I think they're entirely to blame. Whether that's right or wrong, it doesn't change the issue. That I can't leave the break unfixed because until that break is fixed, We've got a body with broken bones. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is going to be broken. And once sin's dealt with, once sin's paid for, then that body is now ready to come back in resurrection life and shake the devil's kingdom to its very, very, very foundations. And it was so important that none of its bones should be broken. Can you hear what I'm saying? Is it making sense to you? And it's a matter of... of, of, of of keeping ourselves from evil. And I wish I could find that scripture because it's just around the other way. And it, and it says, now mark those who cause division and avoid them because they are, they are moving in deceit. They cause division and they cause... Let me just try once more to find it because I thought, well, on the one hand, we've got to separate ourselves from the, the dividers. On the other hand, we've got to give ourselves to, to reconciliation. Let me just try once more. I don't know why I can't find it. Not there. In Second John deals with erroneous doctrine, but I'm, I'm talking about those who cause division. That doesn't sound like it, but let's try it. Titus 3, 9. No, that's not it. No, it, it's, the words are, mark those who cause division and avoid them. And I haven't got a concordance with Oh, it's there. Okay. That's right. Thank you. Because I'm coming to that right now, but I thought that was a separate reference. All right. Well, let's, let's move now to Romans, to Romans 16. 
Thank you. Of course it is, it's right there. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. The better translation is the word innocent. They deceive the hearts of the innocent. For your obedience has become known to all, listen to this, therefore I am glad on your behalf, for I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent concerning evil. And if we will fulfill those conditions, and if we are obedient in that respect, then it says, then the God of peace, see what kind of God is he? The God of peace, the God of mended reconciliation will crush Satan under your feet surely, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Can you see that this, this, this avoiding on the one hand those that cause division, but on the other hand being absolutely active in, in reconciliation, that that allows then the God of peace to crush Satan under your feet shortly. Amen? And I thought, man, I'm, I'm claiming that for my city. And I'm going to fulfill my part. What about you guys? Amen? And I said, well, Lord, you, he mentioned three, three things to me that I've got to go and deal with. I'm also going to just finish with this story that I'm going to close. Way, way back in the history of Mumbai, a young person came to me, young man came to me, and he had had a, he was, he was like the trade union leader that always caused trouble in the, in the Christian organization which he was part of. He was always causing trouble, always finding fault, always criticizing. And he came to me by night, because he didn't want people to know he was coming to see me, because he had a, a, a weeping eczema that was all over his hands, all over his body, and he wanted to be healed. And the place that he was associated with didn't believe in all this stuff, and certainly didn't believe in the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he came to me by night. And when he came to me, the Lord said to me, you can't pray for him until he deals with the sin in his life. And so I said, well, that's what God just said to me. And, and when we looked at it, there were, there were a list of people that he had a, a prejudice against, that the people that had hurt him, people that had offended him, and his view, in every case, they were to blame, and he was innocent. But it was quite a long list, and I think it was 17 people. And so he said, right, I've heard from God, I'm going to go away and do something about it. So he then went round the city to be reconciled to every one of these people. Some of them received him and were joyfully uh, united. Others didn't receive him at all. But as far as he was concerned, the Bible says this, as far as it lies with you, be at peace with everybody. Now, you can't force people to make peace, but you can do all you can from your side to facilitate the peacemaking process. Well, he, he did that, and then he came back to my house about a week later, and he said, I've been busy all week obeying the word of the Lord. He said, now, he said, I've spent years and years criticizing these people and finding fault with them. He said, could, could we have a, a, a time of prayer? Well, I, instead, he said, I like to pray for them. With love. So I said, that sounds great. So we started to pray for him. Uh, we started to pray together. He started to pray for all these people. The spirit of, and he came from a kind of background where this was the last thing you would want to happen. Because <laughs> it was a very strict and particular you know, anti-charismatic brethren church, you see. And as he was praying for all these people, the spirit of God fell on him and he began to speak in tongues. 
I never touched him, honest. And I can still remember when this glorious meeting was over, he, and he got up and he said, well, I think I better go home now. And he said, thank you for a wonderful evening. <laughs> and I watched him stagger to the elevator, to the lift, whichever you want to call it. And that changed his life completely. And that, by the way, the eczema was, I never prayed for the eczema, it just disappeared in a couple of days. And that man was used powerfully by God in the city of Mumbai and many other places too. But if he kept his resentments, he would have just been a miserable, criticizing, fault-finding trade union leader, <laughs> causing trouble in the organization. And I, I just feel that I want every one of these situations that we represent, in every city that we represent, I thought, let's just close by praying, amen? Uh, let's just pray for the peacemakers to rise up. Let's ourselves be exemplary as a peacemaker. And if we don't, let's sit with the people that cause division and, and, and deceitfully poison you towards other people and say, I'm just not going to have nothing whatever to do with them. And even where you think you're 100% innocent and they're 100% guilty, why not behave like God and, and make peace through the blood of his cross so that those that should come together to form these city-taking apostolic teams, there's nothing stopping it happening, amen? And then I think we can then claim the promise that when we have become obedient, then... In this respect, because that's the context of Romans 16, it, it's, to, it's to make peace, it's to avoid those who cause division, to, to love and long for reconciliation. If we will do that, then we are promised the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet shortly. Amen? Can we just stand and, and pray that way? Would you like to join me? I'm going to hand back now to... Eileen, let her take it from here.